one of the things that I do regret is how I viewed sleep. I was somebody, and a lot of people with ADHD share this, that I sort of looked at sleep as an inconvenience. I looked at it as this thing that got in the way of me doing other things or socializing with friends and having fun. And I had, I pushed my body in ways that I really shouldn't have. And as a result, your body does very wacky things and your mind does very wacky things. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. Before I introduce my guest and topic today, I have a quick, important announcement, and that's that the doors to my Differently Wired Club are open for new members for this week only. While I know that many of us love learning from podcasts like this and from books and summits, sometimes that extra step applying and integrating these strategies so we can truly transform our families' lives can be difficult when we're just so consumed with getting through the day-to-day. I created the club to help parents do this deep work within a supportive community where we're all working toward the same goals. So if this feels like the kind of support you could use right now, go to tiltparenting.com club to learn more. Okay, and now on to this week's episode. So I don't know about you, but really, from the time my son was a little guy, sleep has been a major challenge. In fact, the very first type of outside help Darren and I reached out to was a sleep consultant back when Asher was, I think, one years old. So I'm excited to be bringing the topic of sleep in differently wired kids to the show for the very first time. Specifically, we'll be looking at sleep challenges in kids with ADHD. My guest is Dr. Roberto Olivardia, a clinical psychologist and lecturer at Harvard Medical School who specializes in the treatment of ADHD, OCD, and BDD, or body dysmorphic disorder, as well as the associated issues that stem from learning disorders such as anxiety, depression, and sleep dysfunction. Dr. Olivardia is an especially compelling expert on this topic, as he is not only the parent of a child with ADHD, but he himself has an ADHD diagnosis and, in conjunction, has experience with multiple sleep issues, both personally and as a parent. In our conversation, we discuss common sleep problems for children with ADHD, techniques and strategies that are often helpful, the impact of ADHD medication on sleep and the use of melatonin in children, and much more. And I just want to say that while we focus on ADHD in particular, so many of the sleep challenges we discuss will likely be familiar to all parents. So I hope this conversation leads to healthier sleep habits for you and your families. Hello, Roberto. Welcome to the podcast. Great being here. Thank you for having me, Debbie. I'm so excited. And you have so much expertise that is of interest, I think, to my community. So we'll have to bring you back on to to talk about many different subjects. But for today, we are going to be talking about sleep. Actually, I've released more than 200 episodes of the show, and I have never covered sleep as its own topic. So I have a lot of questions for you, and I'm really excited to jump in. But can you take a few minutes to just give us a brief introduction about who you are and and the work that you do in the world. Sure. I am a clinical psychologist and a lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. I have a private practice where I treat people of all ages, uh, children, adolescents, adults. Um, I specialize in a couple things. One uh, is ADHD, executive functioning issues. I work with uh, a lot of students with learning disabilities like dyslexia, um, also specialize in the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder. I work with boys and men with eating disorders, which is something I co-wrote a book about many years ago. And also from a personal experience, I have ADHD. I have a son with ADHD and dyslexia. So from a, I come from this particular topic, you know, from both a, a personal place as well and do a lot of advocacy work around uh, dyslexia and, and learning disabilities and just love to do these kind of podcasts and webinars and presentations to educate people um, because as I'm sure you know that ADHD and learning differences and that whole world is still so misunderstood out there. Yeah, absolutely. And so 
Let's just talk about sleep problems kind of in general, because, you know, I, I've got a 15 year old and we've had sleep problems since he was a baby. Like it's just been a part of our, of our life. And so I'd love to even just to start with, is this common for kids with ADHD and, and maybe talk about why, um, kids with ADHD might be more prone to having sleep problems. Absolutely. So I would say I don't know anybody with ADHD, and I know a lot of people <laughs> with ADHD that that does not have some issue or problem with sleep. I mean, to the degree that honestly, it really should be and probably will be at some point a diagnostic criteria. Um, it is so embedded in the neurological wiring for people with ADHD to have problems with sleep. And that pr- those problems can manifest in different ways. So it, for a a lot of people with ADHD, and myself included, it can be difficulty falling asleep, sort of just quieting your brain, um, not almost like not attending to all of the noise in your head and, and just lying in bed. But, you know, as I heard once a quote, which totally resonated with me that said, you know, for people with ADHD, sleeping is lying in a boring, dark room waiting for nothing to happen. <laughs> and, that's, <laughs> and that's what it feels like. You're like, okay, like what's happening right now? And <laughs> and when you're somebody who's so, you know, ADHD people, our brains are wired to seek stimulation all the time. Like that's how we're oriented is what is going to stimulate me and going to bed, you're, you're trying to actually do the opposite. You're trying to de-stimulate you're trying to come down from stimulation to allow your body to go into slumber and to the phases of sleep. And that's really, really hard. Um, but it could also be issues with waking up multiple times. It could be even with going to bed and ample sleep, difficulty waking up in the morning. Um, and there's a lot of empirical research that documents this in in every culture different socioeconomic groups that find that kids with ADHD and adults with ADHD more likely to have sleepwalking, sleep talking, narcolepsy, sleep apnea, um, sleep paralysis, all of these issues of which I can tell you from my personal experience, like I am probably the poster child of sleep disorders. I have all, all of those things. I mean, when I was a kid, I, as an infant, I had a dif- difficulty falling asleep. I was always a night person. My mother said, I remember her telling me years ago that when I was very, I would just be up all night. And she said, I wasn't colicky. I wasn't irritable. I was just like looking for a party, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> and and she has, I'm the youngest of three kids. So she had two older kids who she had to be up like during the day for. And she called the pediatrician in exhaustion saying, Roberto is just, he's not sleeping at night. And the doctor said, well, have your older kids kind of stimulate him and play with him all day to keep him up so that he'll just conk out at night. So sure enough, she said she had my brother and sister playing with me all day and I was up all day and I was up all night. Mm. Like I still didn't go to sleep even with that. If anything, she said I was probably more wired. Um, so it, it is something that parents can retrospectively look back and say, this isn't something that just started when they were 14. Like I've always kind of seen this. Many people with ADHD also ha- tend to be night owls. And when I actually had a sleep study um, some years ago, it was very it was validating to me that I have something that a lot of people with ADHD have. It's basically a circadian rhythm disorder called a sleep phase delay in your circadian rhythm. So basically, where most people's brains might start quieting down at ten o'clock at night, I would actually get the surge of energy. And then it would be about two in the morning that my brain would start to like be tired. And that is what the sleep study showed. And I thought, oh, okay, this is really interesting. So you see a lot of these kind of issues. Now, of course, if we don't get adequate levels of sleep, um, because people with ADHD are also more likely, and especially college on, to get less sleep, to be more sleep deprived, which certainly doesn't help anything and especially is going to exacerbate their ADHD symptoms. So it's a it's a big issue. And sleep requires a level of executive function. So, you know, one of the reasons that we do see it as a problem, particularly for people with ADHD, is, you know, it requires executive planning to say, okay, I if I plan to be in bed at 10 o'clock at night, that means everything I have to get done, I have to get done before then. Now, we know people with ADHD, we procrastinate, we put things off for the last minute. 
And so a lot of times me being up late at night was a necessity because I wasn't getting the work done. I was supposed to get done, putting it off, and then I'd be writing papers overnight in college. Um, and so I wasn't getting sleep. So it, it takes like, how do you quiet the body down and how do you quiet the mind down to sort of get into sleep? But I always tell parents, it's it's really important to understand when your kids are sort of fighting you on it, that some of it, you know, might feel behavioral, but it really does have a neurological underpinning to it. You know, it doesn't mean, and I tell the kids this, it doesn't mean it's like, oh, I have ADD, I can stay up till two in the morning. We have to work at it because sleep is incredibly necessary for health, but to understand that it does have this biological underpinning to it. Wow, you just shared so many I took a bunch of notes that I'm just like, where do I go from here? Because you shared so many interesting things. One I just want to start with is that I never connected executive functioning with sleep issues. And of course, like that makes absolute sense. We know that most differently wired kids have some deficits with their executive functioning skills. And so you know, and I think of my kid who was up till one in the morning doing the homework that he had four days to do and waited to the last yes. minute. And then it just, you know, we've been in this cycle then all week of the sleep deprivation. And then, so that makes total sense. I, I would love to talk about even just going back, maybe talking about ages a little bit. So I think about the listeners who have kids who are like in preschool or early elementary and are really struggling with their kids being able to turn off their brains at night. And then we know, we read the literature, right? That your six-year-old's supposed to be getting, you know, 11 hours of sleep a night or whatever that is. And we get advice. I got advice that to use melatonin, like to mm -hmm. help. And so I'm wondering, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on melatonin. And then also just um, specifically with that age group, what it looks like, because I imagine it changes as they become teens. Yes. So first is to, to keep in mind that, you know, from a behavioral perspective, that for an ADHD brain, we need some level of stimulation to almost ground ourselves. And so like when we think about kids who are on the hyperactive side, for example, that that hyperactivity is a result of them not getting the proper internal level of stimulation to ground them. So their bodies now are literally moving to search for that kind of stimulation. So now when we're in bed, the lights are off, there's supposedly no sound happening, and we're lying in bed, there's no stimulation. Now, to someone with ADD, that means that your head is easily, either your body's going to create that stimulation, so you're going to start moving. And so things like restless leg syndrome, about a quarter of people with ADHD have restless leg syndrome, which are these involuntary movements of the legs that almost feel like these jerks in a sense. Um, but it's really the body's way of almost literally trying to get stimulation or we're going to create it mentally in our head. So sometimes, you know, for me, it could be something I'm excited about. And then I start activating myself thinking about this, or it could be something I'm anxious about. And now I'm revved up from anxiety and it's even harder to fall asleep. So one suggestion from an environmental perspective is creating some level of stimulation. However, a level of stimulation that is not going to activate them. So for example, having... Um, an instrumental song, the same song on repeat at a low volume. So it's something that the kid can hear, but it's not stim it's not like overstimulating to them, but it's almost like white noise where their brain is recognizing stimulation, which means that they don't have this vast space to be thinking about tomorrow's day at school and all these things. It's like, oh, I'm hearing this piano song, but it's the same song on repeat to the point that it almost gets boring, and then they end up, they can easily fall asleep. Um, I keep my bedroom very cold, actually, so that I like, I need weight on me when I'm sleeping. I don't know how people sleep with like just a sheet on them. That's mm -hmm. so weird to me. They, so even in the summer, I mean, I have air conditioning in my house, but I, my bedroom is pretty cold so that when I get in bed, I have the weight of a heavy comforter. And for a lot of kids with ADHD do actually really well with weighted blankets, um, I tried that. And for me, there's no question I slept more deeply. But for me personally, I felt groggy for hours after I woke up. <laughs> so it's almost like it made me maybe sleep too deeply. Um, but I have patients who use 
15 pound weighted blankets and it really helps them like fall asleep because it literally is grounding them kind of in the bed. You want to make the bed an inviting place to be in that way. Um, with younger kids, I mean, so I have a son, he's 14, he's in the ninth grade, he has ADHD and dyslexia, and he is his father's son. I mean, there's no question that the gen the genetics are pretty, pretty strong. And when he was very young, he very hard time sleeping. And we bought one of those swings, those, you know, baby swings that you put them in. And we would, I would literally put them in that and we put it on the highest setting. So for some kids, that would be very overstimulating where they'd be like crying. There's no way they'd be able to fall asleep with the swing going back and forth and back and forth. For him, that is exactly what he needed. And we just, I, I didn't care how many batteries I needed to use. <laughs> That's what got him to sleep so that my poor wife could get some sleep. Um, and he would fall asleep and then I we'd make, you know, keep him in there for a little bit. And then I take him out, we put him in his crib and he'd fall asleep. And when you have a child with ADHD, you want to keep in mind that, you know, their brain is requiring something different than maybe your other kids who might not have ADHD, that we have to be outside the box. When I would sing lullabies to my son, I didn't sing the typical soft, you know, easy kind of cadence. I sang like rock songs to him and very you know, loud, like what, again, would totally perturb like my daughter who doesn't have ADHD. Like I sang to her the classic kind of lullabies, but to my son, the louder I sang, the easier he fell asleep. So it might seem paradoxical. Now with melatonin, you know, I always tell people, of course, always check with your pediatrician, never engage in, you know, using anything without talking to your doctor. Um, but studies show it can be very effective. And it, um, even in young people, because part of it is, and I understand, you know, parents, obviously, we uh, always want to be aware and concerned about what, you know, we're giving our children. But I, I have to stress, there's such an impact of sleep deprivation that causes so much harm to our body, to our immune system, to our brain. It exacerbates ADHD, anxiety, all of those things that you know, we, we always want to make sure that we're weighing it with that, not to mention for the parent or the caregiver themselves who, if their child isn't sleeping, it means they're probably not mm -hmm. sleeping and that's not good for their mental health. Um, but melatonin can be very effective because part of it is that the ADHD brain for a lot of kids with ADHD, it is, and it's been shown, melatonin levels are not naturally being released in the ways that they are for neurotypical people who, when the sun goes down, they start to get tired. Again, like I said, it could be this paradoxical effect where they're feeling like a second wind and a burst of energy. And it's it's almost puzzling, you know, to a parent that doesn't have ADHD. Like, I totally understood that because I, I, I knew it. I, I intimately lived that experience. So the melatonin is basically giving the brain something that it almost has like a deficit in. So, but again, always check with your pediatrician in terms of, you know, dosages, because it really varies um, depending on the person. And just like stimulant medication, um, stimulant medication is not dosed to body weight, which unfortunately some some doctors who don't understand ADHD as well still do, because this isn't, it's all about how it's metabolizing for that particular person. And I know you know, younger children who are on even ADHD medication who are on higher doses than some adults that I work with because of just the nature of their symptoms and impulsivity and things like that. We'll be right back after this quick break. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary of Gotcha Day when we adopted our sweet Haskell, my cat who acts like a dog, plays fetch, and who I'm pretty sure has sensory processing differences. Are you getting a new pet soon? That means you'll need to think about getting the necessities like food, toys, a bed. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim, and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. 
To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. There's so much more to maintaining a healthy gut microbiome than eating a balanced and healthy diet, travel, certain medications, and of course, something many of us have plenty of in our daily life, stress, are just some of the other factors that can totally throw off our systems. Enter Ritual. They created Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Their supplement includes two of the world's most clinically studied probiotic strains to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gas, and diarrhea. I like Symbiotic Plus because it delivers all this goodness in one single nested minty delayed released capsule designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract. And because the capsules don't require refrigeration, I just keep them on my desk so that I get that helpful visual cue every morning. Plus, they're easy to bring with me when I travel. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Yeah, I mean, I'm remembering when my son was younger that we went through maybe two years where my husband would kind of, they wrestle together, you know, before bedtime, Mm -hmm. like that very, that was very physical wrestling kind of helped him calm down. And then for years, years and years and years, probably until he was maybe 12, at least he would listen to a book on tape, he'd go to sleep to that, but he would be the same book on tape. So Because we know reading for him, I used to say, it's like when you read a book, because he's an avid reader, I'm like, that's like watching a movie for another person. Mm -hmm. It it puts me to sleep. It makes him wake up more because it comes to life. But I guess listening to the same story over and over was kind of our equivalent of that dull background noise because it wasn't new every time. Exactly, exactly. So he's, that's a, that's, those are wonderful suggestions that, you know, a book on tape that he's very familiar with. um, So he knows he doesn't have to totally pay attention to it because he knows the details, but he's paying enough attention to it. And, you know, with reading, it's really all of these things are very individual. Like, so for me personally, you know, reading was not one of my favorite activities. And so if I'm going to read something, it has to be interesting and exciting. And and if it is interesting, and exciting, then it's going to activate me and make it difficult for me to just put the book down and, you know, go to sleep. So reading for me would never work. But there are lots of people um, with ADD who are like, you know what, I'm going to read a chapter and then that helps ground me and calm me down. And so a lot of it And this is not just for sleep. This is for lots of things with ADHD is, you know, I always say to anyone of any age, like you're really going to be your own researcher and figuring out what's going to work for you. And the benefit, especially when kids are young and you're having these conversations with them, is you're helping them recognize, you know, what is going to work for them and to be mindful of that. And I've always felt that one of sort of the upside of the ADHD experience is that because of all of that, that I had to navigate, you know, when I was younger and still, you know, it's not like, you know, there's it's an evolution, but I really know myself really well. Like I know what works and what doesn't because I had to, like I had to figure those things out in a way. And so I always tell, you know, uh, one advice to talk to your kids about because it can be tough and it's really frustrating and especially kids who feel like oh like why do I always have to work so hard at this and this and this is to let them know yes it is hard work and there's a lot of trial and error but the result of this is you're going to know yourself and you're going to understand totally what works for you in a way that really could be advantageous later on but right now it's it is challenging and it is hard it's so true I I always say that these kids do have to work so hard and know themselves so well that they're much more kind of emotionally or in emotional intelligence has evolved much more their self-awareness than most neurotypical people because right. they've never had to really work at it or try yeah, to do that deep dive. 
I'm wondering about some of the strategies, like if you, as many parents have done as I did, um, you know, are Googling, how do I help my child sleep and, you know, take a warm bath, uh, try meditation, you know, lower the lights, you know, an hour before, like, are there, we've tried everything at some point and tried creating new routines, you know, in addition to the things that you've shared, is it really just individual or are, can some of those strategies like doing a guided meditation or doing some deep breathing or taking a warm bath, can that be helpful? Absolutely. So all of those things you mentioned are things that I advise people to do. So, you know, when we think of the ADHD experience is that, you know, we're externally stimulated and externally focused. And so people with ADHD lack what we call an interoceptive awareness, which is really kind of tuning in inside our bodies. And that includes sleep. That includes eating, which is something maybe we could talk about at a later podcast because I treat a lot of people with ADHD and problems with eating and overeating and impulsive eating. But that same notion of, am I tired? Like, you know, people in my life, you know, who don't have ADHD, when they're like, you're tired, like, you know that you're tired. And to me, it's like, Well, I don't know what that means. I guess for me, I used to define I'm tired by there's nothing else for me to do, so I should just go to bed. (laughs) But if there's something for me to do, and when you're in college, especially, there's always something, there's always somebody up, you know, no matter what time of day, then I'm not tired. But that's similar to food, which also, you know, healthy eating also requires a lot of executive function. Like if the food is there and I like it, well, why wouldn't I eat it? Whereas other people would be like, oh, I'm satisfied, so I'm not going to eat that food even though I like it because I'm, I don't need it. That's really hard for people with ADHD. We almost have to train ourselves to do that. And with sleep, part of that is setting up the environment. So you mentioned things like dimming the lights. Um, like I used to not change into my sleeping clothes until literally a second before going into bed. And you know what I implemented years ago was two to three hours beforehand, I change into my sleeping clothes so that it's almost like you're looking at your body saying, oh, I guess I'm going to sleep soon. Mm -hmm. You know, even though you still might not be feeling it, but you're getting like the cues, you're dimming the lights, which is telling like I'm somebody I love lots of bright lights. And so I had to be conscious of that and making sure to dim the lights. Um, For some people, it means getting off of electronics. And that's especially true for kids. Um, I mean, I didn't grow up with the internet and all of that. And the kid in me wished I did, but the me now, I'm so glad I didn't because I would have totally had a problem with it. Mm -hmm. Um, That the amount of stimulation video games or the internet can give, it can be a lot, you know, to go from that to then nothing, you know, in terms of stimulation. Um, Keeping a room super dark for me helps. No light, and that includes any clocks or anything. Now, some kids have a harder time with that. They'd rather a little nightlight and they almost can focus on the little nightlight and then they end up falling asleep. Um, Light music on repeat. I have kids that wear eye masks to sort of block out, you know, extra light. Um, I have kids that wear earplugs because any sound, you know, because a lot of kids with ADHD, they find that they might not even be hitting the deep stages of sleep as quickly as we think they are. They might be like light sleepers. So they almost can wake up at like the, you know, but in the morning, it's like waking the dead, you Mm -hmm. know, that they have, it's so difficult. But I was a kid where the slightest sound when I was growing up, I'd be like, what's that? You know, I could just almost like I wasn't even sleeping. But then especially in high school, oh my gosh, I would sleep through alarms that my brother and I, who sh- we shared a room together, he'd be like, how are you not hearing that? That's literally ringing in your eardrum and I'd be out. And because at that point, I'm now in that stage for deep sleep, but it would take me hours probably to to get there. Um, as a parent, for my son, I would sing to him and it would, sometimes it would be like 45 minutes of me singing to him, but that's what got him to sleep. Mm. Um, it could be other sort of sensory type things. So, uh, you know, a, a, a certain kind of blanket, um, a wedge pillow. I sleep with a wedge pillow. There's something about sleeping fully horizontally that's uncomfortable for me. I, I don't, I can't tell you why, but since I sleep with a wedge pillow, I sleep so much better, like sleeping almost on like an angle or an incline. So it's trying these things that might seem very 
odd in some way. Now, you mentioning like, you know, your son and your husband wrestling. Absolutely. Now, I work out in the nighttime. So tonight, for example, I'll be, you know, at the gym at nine o'clock at night. Now, for a lot of people, that would totally activate them. I will have, I can tell you now, I'll have a better time sleeping tonight having had that workout. I'll work out, I'll come home, take a shower, and I'm more likely to get to bed at a normal time than if I didn't. So it's almost like because these are not conventional brains, so to speak, some of the conventional methods might also, you know, be different, you know, in in that way. Mm, Super interesting. So let's go back to waking the dead. Because, um, (laughs) you know, we read all the articles about teenagers sleep patterns change anyway, like they tend to become night owls. And and that's why there's so much conversation about changing school start times for high school students and things like that. Is that is that just the same for kids with ADHD? Or does it look different that those uh, rhythm changes that happen for adolescents? I would say it's the same, but it's a level, it's almost exacerbated Mm -hmm. all of that. So with ADHD, it's all of the stuff that you would typically see happen with an adolescent brain, but an additional challenge, you know, with it, because these are even like the typical adolescent you'll find might have issues with like being a night owl, issues with sleep. But if you're someone who it's been pre-existing, it's been literally since the day you were born that you had issues with sleep, it's going to be that much more. And I, that is probably one of the, I mean, sleep and eating, these two topics are probably the most prevalent topics that parents will bring up to me about their ADHD kids. They're like, you know, it's so difficult getting them ready in the morning and, and I'm pulling my hair out and I don't understand, you know, how are they? Now, first of all, I'm a huge supporter of the late start time. My son, fortunately, is in one of those high schools where they have a late start time. I cannot imagine being at school at 7.15 or 7.30 in the morning. When I was in high school, 8.30 was when we started, and 8.45 was actually the first class. So it was 8.30 was homeroom. And that was still difficult for me. I mean, I honestly don't even remember first period of all four years of my high school. I mean, that's how out of it I was. I don't even think I woke up until 10 o'clock, really, like cognitively. And so there is there is something biological about that. And so now studies show what can help with that is if kids can have some, and, you know, and it's hard in the morning, but even like 10 minutes of jumping jacks, um, you know, running around of any kind of physical activity that there have been research studies that have shown that kids who engage in kind of high intensity physical activity in the morning, that that can really jumpstart their frontal lobe. And, all, and that's where all of our executive functions are housed. Um, having a high protein breakfast, um, and, you know, in America, we associate cereal as a typical breakfast. Honestly, most cereal is filled with sugar and really doesn't have any substantive nutrients to it. Um, Eggs, even leftovers from dinner the night before, chicken, you know, whatever you have, that will be a much more substantive meal um, from a nutritional perspective to give these kids like an, an extra boost of sort of starting their day. You know, anything like that can be really uh, helpful. And, you know, with even waking them up, especially like kids who you have in high school, have an alarm that's not at arm's length that they have to get up um, for. You might set multiple alarms. Um, you really, especially in high school, really want to work at having them begin to sort of wake themselves up. And, but at the same time, you know, understanding that they are, they're going to need your help and they're going to need your support in, in doing that. But it's almost this collaborative effort of you don't want all the responsibility to be you waking your kid up because then when that kid goes to college, they have not learned how to actually do that. Like these things don't just get internalized. They really have to sort of practice that. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, 
six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. Let me ask you a question about making up sleep. So I have read that having a regular sleep schedule, going to bed at around the same time, waking up around the same time every day is important just for emotional, mental well-being, as opposed to I know a lot of our kids on a weekend, we'll sleep until noon or something, the older kids to make up for sleep. What are your thoughts on that? So this is the depressing fact. And I was not happy when I learned about this. When you lose sleep, it's gone. Like you do not actually make up for sleep. What happens is that we're so exhausted if we haven't slept well, that our body will just want more of it, but it doesn't undo the effects of that sleep deprivation. And so from a scientific perspective, we're not making up on sleep. And that's why it is important to try to wake up and and go to bed. And, you know, understandably on the weekends, you know, no kid especially is going to want to wake up at seven o'clock, but they say at least within a two hour range. Um, once you get beyond a two hour range, so if you're typically waking up at seven and that kid now is waking up at noon, that's really upsetting their circadian rhythms. And that's, again, even more so for kids with ADHD. So kids with ADHD um, and adults, for that matter, we need more of that structure and routine. And part of having ADHD is we almost rebel against wanting around structure and routine. But at the same time, we need it a lot. But yeah, we don't make up for that. And, And what's sad, I mean, there are a lot of studies that show just even you know sleep deficits of 1 to 2 hours can have noticeable executive impact the next day i mean there are studies of showing like you know sleep deprivation to be equivalent to people who are moderately drinking alcohol in terms of you know driving processing and things like that and and knowing that kids with adhd um or uh, i should say anyone with adhd as a whole have higher rates of you know car accidents and things like that distracted driving that now when you put sleep deprivation on that it doesn't doesn't bode well and so it is it is super important and you know i share with people like i've i'm a fairly healthy person and and but one of the things that i do regret is how i viewed sleep i was somebody and a lot of people with adhd share this that I sort of looked at sleep as an inconvenience. I looked at it as this thing that got in the way of me doing other things or socializing with friends and having fun. And I had, I pushed my body in ways that 
I really shouldn't have. And as a result, your body does very wacky things and your mind does very wacky things. Like I've, I got shingles when I was in, you know, my early thirties and shingles, you know, for young people out there who might not know what it is. I mean, that's something that like people typically in their eighties get, you know, like it's not normal to get shingles when you're 30, but when you run your body down like that, it has such a noticeable impact on your immune system, but also just mentally in terms of our mood, our ability to regulate our mood. It affects our appetite, that there's a high correlation between sleep deprivation and obesity because there are hormones that are happening in the body that actually program it to conserve body fat and, and plummet our metabolism when we're sleep deprived. So there's so many implications of it that I think a lot of especially young people don't really appreciate. And I was one of those young people that didn't really appreciate it. It's only when I got older and it started to hit me in a different way that I thought, oh, I guess I should really work at this. Um, so I think it should be a conversation to just, you know, even when your kid is young and, you know, in, in language that they understand to start to sort of prep like how important sleep is, not just because it's one of those like, oh, sleep is important because it is. It's, you know, oh, like sharing with them that, you know, when you sleep, it actually, your brain is doing a lot of activity in terms of making you stronger, making you think better the next day. Like we think of sleep as a passive process. There's a lot of activity happening when we're sleeping. So how about for listeners whose kids are on ADHD medication? I don't have personal experience with this, but I have heard that um, that can also sometimes affect or, or maybe you tell me like is there a correlation between ADHD meds and trouble going to sleep or what is the relationship there yes yeah, so the the class of medications for ADHD are the stimulant medications um, things like concerta and methylphenidates the Adderall uh, amphetamine salts and it's interesting that so yes there are some people who if they take a dose of their medication later in the day, it will affect and impact their sleep and keep them up for a long period of time. However, I have many patients actually who will take a dose of, of their medication sometimes within a four-hour window before they go to sleep and it actually helps them go to sleep because it's properly focusing them on going to sleep, meaning they're not going to be distracted by all those other thoughts that might be circulating in their head they're better able to feel grounded and in their body um, in that way. So again, it's so it's trial and error that each individual with ADHD presents differently. You know that there's this commonality that we all have and and share. And when you're talking to someone with ADHD, there are going to be those moments. It's like, oh man, that's exactly like me. Oh, I totally understand. And then there are going to be things that are wildly different. You know, I have an older brother. He has ADHD. Our ADHD manifests in very different. He's more the inattentive type. I'm definitely more the hyperactive type. And so as a result, that presents, you know, there are commonalities and then there are differences. And so I would say with parents, you know, whose children are taking medication, and this could be frustrating, but it's worth going through this process, is almost preparing for a little trial and error. And that might mean sometimes trying four different medications. Because again, somebody could have, could take one medication and it keeps them up all night. And they could take another one in the same family. Like they could take another medication in the same methylphenidate family, let's say, and it does something different. And that's what's interesting is that it's not as um, sort of predictable in some ways as some other classes of medications like the SSRIs, which are antidepressants, because you know the the stimulant is working in in context of that particular person. So to give you another example, like if somebody has ADHD and anxiety, so thirty percent of people with ADHD have anxiety. Sometimes stimulant medication makes their anxiety worse because they're focusing more on the thing that's making them anxious. And a lot of people, the stimulant helps their anxiety because they're better able to properly focus on what they want to be focusing on and moving away from the anxiety. But there's no prediction as to which people will be in what group. So I, there are people I work with with ADHD and obsessive compulsive disorder who cannot be on a stimulant. And then there are some that the stimulant is a very important part of actually helping, even though the stimulant is not a treatment per se for their OCD, 
But if their executive function and their lives are in place and there isn't a lot of chaos, their OCD doesn't get triggered. And so the same is with sleep is you have to sort of try it out, but don't throw out the idea of all medications because one of them doesn't work. It really, they're so, they're, they're so nuanced, these medications, even though they're in similar families, um, that it could be worth it. Great. Thank you for that. Super helpful. So let me just ask one more question. And that is for parents who are listening, who are in this predicament and their child is really struggling with sleep and they don't know where to start. Do you have strategies or maybe some favorite resources or what should their first step be to try to get things back on track or help their child? Yeah, I would say really just, you know, trying to get an assessment of what the issue is, you know, are they having an issue with almost properly grounding themselves to like go to sleep? Are they worried, you know, that they're going to wake up in the middle of the night or maybe they will wake up in the middle of the night and they're worried about how to then soothe themselves back to sleep, trying to get a sense of that and also working with your child around uh, bedtime hours. Now, this is something also I would say more for high school students that sometimes and I would agree with this, that, you know, with a high school student, sometimes there's this window if they go to bed too early, then they're not almost tired enough, and then they're thinking, 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 and then they're up all night. So sometimes it's actually helpful for them to go to bed like maybe a half hour, 45 minutes, maybe even sometimes an hour later, but then they're much more tired and able to fall asleep, and then they get a more solid level of sleep. So it's almost keeping, I would keep a log, basically, of like how many hours are they sleeping, what's helping them fall asleep, what's getting you know in the way certainly talking you know with their pediatrician or a therapist that has experience with ADHD to try to you know understand and really work collaboratively with with the child because a lot of times especially when children are young they if they have trouble falling asleep they might just come into your room and want to sleep with you and initially that's going to be fine and there are some nights but what I've seen a lot is that that can become then a habit where the kid is not learning their own way of soothing themselves because part of it is what we're trying to do is help them remain in bed even though their brain might be kind of bored and so their brain is now going to look for something to stimulate and they have a hard time soothing from that. What are tools that we can give them and helping kids have like a toolkit? Maybe they have a teddy bear that they sleep with. Maybe there's something sensory that they can touch or a certain blanket that helps them adjusting the temperature in their room and and saying, okay, let's work together to figure out how we can help you sleep. Also keep in mind and be watchful. Um, if you have a child that snores like loud, you know, like to the point where you can hear them in the next wall, please talk to your pediatrician about a sleep study. Um, I have very severe sleep apnea and I was a snorer my whole life. And I was this short, skinny kid, you know, when I was very young and my brother would be horrified by the noise that came out of <laughs> that came out of me. And it wasn't until I had a patient who had sleep apnea and ADD that I researched sleep apnea. And I thought, hmm, I can relate to a lot of these symptoms. Had a sleep study, and basically you need 20, what they call an event, 20 events in an hour to be diagnosed where you're either not breathing or your oxygen levels are super low. And I had 98 events in oh an hour. Wow. And it turned out I had a deviated septum in my nose, which was only allowing for 30% oxygen to go through my nostrils. And my throat basically is anatomically you know, such a way where my tonsils are enlarged and it's so crowded that I was getting almost nothing through my throat. So the doctor said it was literally like me breathing through a straw under the ocean, like mm. trying to get oxygen. So, and it's, and it could be very harmful for your health. Luckily, I caught it early where, you know, my heart's fine and everything. But um, with kids, sometimes they do a tonsillectomy and that could help. Um, sometimes it's a septoplasty where they remove, they clear out that deviated septum. Um, sometimes it could be related to weight. Um, you know, sometimes it's anatomical, sometimes it's weight related. But definitely just be a, a, aware of that because that's something that even though your kid might look like they're sleeping, if they're snoring that loudly, they may never be entering those deep levels of sleep, which then it can explain why they have a hard time waking up and it can absolutely exacerbate their ADHD symptoms. And in some cases, I've worked, I've done consultations where kids did not have ADHD. They actually had severe sleep apnea. 
Um, and then in a lot of the cases, they had it's both. I, I think, again, you'll see a higher rate of sleep apnea and these sleep disorders in, in kids with ADHD. Wow. So helpful. This just you've shared so many great words of wisdom and insights and just information. So thank you so much for all of that. And is there a place for listeners to connect with you or are you on social media or what, where do you suggest people go? So I'm sort of in the dark ages where (laughs) I, I don't have any social media. Um, and I don't even have a website, but I do welcome, um, I have good old fashioned email. Uh, my email address is Roberto, R-O-B-E-R-T-O underscore Olivardia, which is O-L-I-V as in Victor, A-R-D as in Daniel, I-A, at H-M-S as in Harry, Mary, Sally, dot Harvard, dot E-D-U. And honestly, any parents out there, um, I welcome, you know, any questions and, and I will definitely get back to everybody. Thank you so much, listeners. I'll I'll have Roberto's email on the show notes page if you want to to check that out. And wow, okay, and yeah, I actually just did an episode recently about body positivity and differently mm-hmm. wired kids. But I'll definitely uh, want to circle back to you to talk more about your work regarding food and boys and and kids. So thank you for that, and thank you again just for everything you shared today. I really appreciate all the time you took with us. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.